Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who have also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining me again. This is part two, the conclusion of my conversation with the great Chuck Lavelle. When last we heard from him, he had left the embers of the Allman Brothers band in the mid-70s, and uh, he's just in the process of forming Sea Level, which is a band that consisted of uh, himself, of course, and two members of the Allman Brothers band of that era. There was Lamar Williams playing bass, a killer killer bass player who is very underappreciated he's the guy that replaced barry oakley and the allman brothers and jamo the drummer from the allman brothers the three of them plus their buddy jimmy Knowles, who was like a i think back from back in the dr john days and they formed this band sea level which made some really cool records i hadn't really checked out much of them before speaking with chuck but they're really cool like kind of early 70s jazz funk stuff and Man, they get into some really cool grooves, so check out Sea level Anyway, that's where the story is going to start, and uh, things go on from there. Of course, the biggest part of which is uh, him joining a little unknown band called the Rolling Stones, which is going to come up shortly, and um, going on from there. So thank you very much for joining me once again. If you haven't listened to episode one of the Chuck Lavelle interview, make sure you go back and check it out, because a lot of this stuff isn't going to make sense if you just listen to this one. So this is it. Part two, enjoy it, and we'll be back in three weeks and back to the monthly schedule with another new episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Enjoy. All right, now we need to take care of just a little bit of business before we get going. I want to tell you how you can get behind the show and support it. There's a bunch of ways to do it. Go to iTunes, subscribe, leave a comment, a good comment preferably, and spread the word. Tell all your friends. 
Uh, you can also financially support the podcast with a one-time donation, which is great, or by contributing monthly through our Patreon site. All that information is on my website at stevedawson.ca. You go to the podcast page, and right at the top are the two ways to contribute to the show. So if you want to consider doing that, that's a big help. Uh, also, this year we have t-shirts and maybe some other swag a little bit later as the season progresses. That's also at the same website, stevedawson.ca, podcast page. It's all right there at the top. Any of those ways that you feel inclined to help out the show would be greatly appreciated. And lastly, a word from this week's sponsors, Union, Tube, and Transistor. They have some new products coming down the line. First of all, they're doing a killer new guitar signal splitter called the GBX95. It allows you to split your guitar to up to 6 amps plus a DI, which is actually way harder to do than it should be. Very handy for recording multiple guitar amps. Next, they're about to release their 343 guitar amp. It features a very unique 10 and 12 inch speaker switching feature. You can run one or both speakers for tonal options. And finally, their lab compressor pedal is a little optical compressor and is killer both in front of a guitar amp or as a piece of outboard studio gear. I use one pretty much all the time. Head on over to uniontone.com to find out more. All right then, let's do this. Here is this month's episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Yeah, you guys made some really cool records, and I, I just wondered if you could talk a, a little bit about Lamar Williams, because that guy is like totally underappreciated, I think, and there's very little like documented about him, but he was a killer player that he was in the Almonds in that era, and then, of course, with Sea Level with you. Uh, can you just tell me about his his role in the band and just what it was like playing with that guy? Yeah, um, when Barry died, another horrible tragedy for the band to go through and to get over. Uh, and we all realized, well, you know, we've already carried on from one tragic death and we're going to carry on from this one. And of course we went through the grief period, but when it came time to start thinking about bass players, you know, we auditioned several guys. Um, and Lamar was the last one brought in. He was suggested by JMO. JMO had played with him in Mississippi where they both grew up. And, mm. When Lamar walked into that studio and strapped on that bass, it probably wasn't 10 minutes later that we all looked at each other and said, this is the guy. I mean, you know, why why look any further, you know? And so it was, it was that night, that first night. Well, I think maybe we, we went into the second day, I guess. And, uh, we, after playing a few songs, huddled into a side room in the studio and everybody looked at each other and what do you think? And everybody raised their hand and said, he's the cat. You know, there's no doubt about it. Let's go. So, uh, we brought him in. He had said, you know, it was so interesting. I mean, he's obviously he had his own style, very unique style and oddly not that dissimilar from Barry's style. Uh, it's a uh-huh. more melodic style of bass playing uh, rather than always, you know, working with the bass drum and kind of the traditional thing. It was like, uh, well, let's, what's the guitar doing? What can I do to kind of weave the bass with the right. guitar? And, uh, and Barry was a genius at that. And so was Lamar and Lamar, but he, he did it his own way, obviously. He, but he was also very respectful of Barry so that certain songs that Barry was known for, whether it be whipping post or anything like that, some of the early almond stuff, uh, he was very respectful of and, and tried to, yeah. You know, stick with uh, what was 
what needed to be there for people to know what it was and then take off when when he uh, felt comfortable doing so. With Sea Level, um, he was the obvious choice. Like that band was sort of developed from the Allman Brothers, but but you obviously loved playing with him, right? Yeah, we did. You know, the way Sea Level came about was that uh, before you know the the band broke up, uh, JMO encouraged Lamar and myself to oftentimes come over to his house. He had a, a setup in a very big room with uh, instruments and everything. Made it easy to do jams and just have fun playing. And so we started a little thing called We Three. It was just the three of us. And sometimes we never played professionally. I mean, for money, you know, it was always at somebody's party or at some event, sitting in, doing a few songs. Uh, and then when the inevitable was coming down that the almonds were going to break up, we had this meeting where really we were the only ones that showed up. You know, it was me and <laughs> JMO and Lamar and the rest of the guys were off doing something. Else. And um, so we kind of looked at each other and said, "Well, all right, we." This this ain't working. The band's going to break up. We know this. Or we can all go our separate ways, or maybe we can capitalize on what we started here. And that's what we decided to do. And I, I was not comfortable being, you know, a trio. I, I wanted a guitar player, and that's where I suggested Jimmy, and he came in and fit the bill. He's a great guitar player, man. So he was he was a guy that you knew from from uh, the early days. And what had he been doing in the last? couple of years like right leading up to sea level well i hate to have to tell you a sad story but jimmy passed away a little over a year ago now he the last years of his life he suffered severely with parkinson's disease and so he gave up playing oh god 10 years 10 years ago maybe uh Mm -hmm. uh, after sea level though he worked with the nighthawks for a while uh, oh, so okay. you know, he was in, in their band and did a couple of records with him. Uh, he did some records with Paul Stuckey of Peter, Paul and Mary. Peter, uh, Paul and Mary, Jimmy, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he played often uh, during those years, I think with, uh, with Paul. And, uh, we were able to do a couple of tribute albums uh, for Jimmy, uh, those of us that loved him and, and, you know, Jimmy, found his way into financial arrears and and so we tried to lift him up as best we could by doing some projects and benefits for him uh and sadly uh what happened was he i think he had come home from his doctors and was trying to get down the stairs he had trouble walking and his very petite wife was with him and uh he slipped and there was just no holding him back and so he fell down uh, a flight of stairs and uh, had a you know severe head trauma oh that's tragic man yeah he was a good man Ugh. like sea level you had quite a run you guys made quite a few records those are really cool records and then um i don't know exactly how this went down but what i heard is that um in the early 80s you you had an audition for the stones that that you ended up not getting mm-hmm. like ian McLoggan got the gig is that right uh yeah it was here's what went down so during the years with the almonds um I made friends with Bill Graham. And of course, Bill's favorite band was the Allman Brothers Band. I think when I got in the band, he looked at me with some degree of skepticism. You know, what's a piano player doing in a guitar band? But I won him Uh, over. I won him over pretty quickly. And, you know, we did lots and lots of shows that Bill promoted um, after the Brothers and Sisters record came out. And so Bill, fast forward to 81, and Bill uh, became tour director for the Stones. It was kind of a a unique position. You know, he was 
in charge of the whole tour rather than managers of the band going and, and working with promoters in this city, the, that city or this region or that region, uh, Bill became the guy. And so Bill would uh, choose what promoters locally to work with. It was a unique um, position at the time. So anyway, uh, as they had finished uh, doing Tattoo You and started to tour, <clears throat> um, they wanted to try some different guys and um, they had some guys from New York go up and audition and Bill suggested my name. He said, you know, you really ought to check this guy out from living down there in Georgia, Southern boy, you know? And mm-hmm. so I was out of work at the time and I said, this is a true story. So I, this, uh, to, uh, try not to get long winded, but I had found an interest in forestry and conservation because my wife had inherited, inherited some land and I wanted to do the right thing by the land. So I began to study on forestry. I was not playing music that much. I had a little trio. I was playing clubs, uh, the phone wasn't ringing for recording sessions. So I started focusing on this a whole other life. And I came home one day and said to uh, my wife, her name is Rose Lane. I said, Rosie, you know, uh, I'm always going to play music. I'm never going to stop that, but I'm just, I'm just not getting any work. And I'm really interested in, in this forestry stuff and the environment and uh, I'm enjoying learning and practicing it. And she listened very patiently. And at the end of all this, she said, well, that's all good and fine, Chuck. And I appreciate that. But guess what? The Rolling Stones called you today. <laughs> 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 oh my god and, and I, I right on the I, right on the day where you're hanging it up <laughs> i was like don't pull my leg now honey i you know no here's the phone number right here you march right over to that telephone right now call and uh i did <laughs> and i got um some secretary on the phone i said well i don't know if this is true or not but here i am i got a call later that day from ian stewart um i would think yeah, most the, the most of your stewart Yes, yeah. Most of your listeners know who Ian was. Uh, Stu, he was known as. He was a great piano player and someone that I learned, a, 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 especially the boogie woogie style. I learned a great deal from Stu. But Stu had been in the original uh, Rolling Stones. He actually was the guy that put the ad in the player about uh, wanting to put a blues band together, and that's kind of how it first came came to be. Well, anyway, uh, when Andrew Lou Goldham was the manager. He felt, number one, Stu didn't really look the part of a rock guy, and number two, six was too many, and he wanted a five-piece. And so they, uh, you know, they kind of gently said to Stu, well, listen, we don't want you in the, in the full band. And rather than run away with his tail between his legs, he said, well, okay, you know, I could hang out and perform other things, maybe still play on the records, which he did, and he still played live mm-hmm. sometimes. So he became a logistician, a confidant, um, you know, and, and he just assumed another role. So he was the guy to call me. And uh, Amazing. He, was, he was the guy that picked me up at the airport when I landed. We hit it off immediately. Uh, he really? was just, oh, yeah. He was a sweetheart of, of a human being. I just loved him so much. And uh, when we, when I did get the gig and we'd be in London, you know, he'd say, you're not staying in a hotel. You're staying with me. I've got two nice pianos and a very large record collection. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so we'd listen to Boogie Woogie and play those two pianos. And he instructed me a great deal on the left hand uh, in that style. And we became wow. very, very close. He largely encouraged the band to, to have me in it. So thank you, Stu. 
Yeah, I'll say. Um, for a while there, like he he didn't last too much longer. Like I know he died in the uh, I, I'm not sure what year, but it would have been the mid '80s. Um, uh, but at at that point, you were doing the two keyboard thing. Um, so were you you were again the organ chair essentially in the Stones, and he was playing the piano, or were you guys switching off? Um, Stu was so funny. I don't like slow songs; they're boring, and. I don't like minor chords. It sounds Chinese. So if it, if it was a ballad or if it had minor uh, keys, I played the piano. And uh, otherwise, he might play the piano and I'd play organ. And um, then, you know, there was a, a long gap between 1982 uh, where the band did not tour, but we did two records. We did uh, the um, Dirty Work record and um, Undercover. And mm -hmm. so, you know, they were uh, three to four months at a time in, in a studio in Paris and working every day. And I was on those records. And uh, and then finally, when we did Steel Wheels uh, in 89, the band decided to tour and, uh, you know, been doing it ever since. Can you tell me a little bit about your, your connection with the band? Like um, you've had a lot of experiences in your career playing with like incredible pairings of people. And, you know, one of them that comes to mind for me is the pairing of Keith Richards and Charlie Watts. They, they, they seem to be locked into this otherworldly kind of groove. I'm just wondering from, from your point of view, from your chair being the keyboard guy, uh, what sort of things stick out to you as, as being a, a member of that band? Like I can't even imagine, obviously. So if you, if you could give us some insight, that would be great. <laughs> well, first of all, and I, I say this jokingly, but I'm often reminded by Keith Richards that it is a guitar band. <laughs> so, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, um, but, you know, I, I get a, quite a lot of space to play. I don't get a lot of solo time, okay? It's not that kind of gig. Yeah. Uh, but what right. it has morphed into being, in, when we started the rehearsals for Steel Wheels, 1989, I went to the band because when we did the tour in 82, every show was the same, the same set list all the way through every show. So like 30 odd shows. And uh, I went to the guys and I said, man, you know, you've got a body of work here, man. Let's, let's get down and, and dig deep. And, and, uh, you know, we don't have to learn every single song, but let's pick some cherries that we can swap in and out and, and keep it fun and interesting. So, it was a long rehearsal period, and I started taking copious notes. Uh, you know, I would write a chord chart uh, from the record, or if there was something that we changed uh, for the live for one reason or another, uh, I made notes about that. Uh, did we have horn parts on it? And if so, what were they? Uh, what about the background vocals? Uh, what were the tempos? Uh, you know, so I started just doing every song that we tried out, and um, I had a great technician at the time, a great roadie, and he started taking all these handwritten sheets and putting them in the little plastic covers and in a notebook. And every rehearsal that we've done since then, every tour, I've kept that up. And so, uh, you know, now I've got these two Bibles, uh, wow. I think it's A to M and then, you know, the rest to Z. And uh, I can refer to them. Uh, and they started looking to me like, oh, well, Chuck remembers the arrangement. Of, where does the middle eight come? You know, where's the solo? <laughs> and then that even transpired to on stage, if there was any doubt, they could look my way and, and I could give certain signals or nods of the head or whatever it might be to 
you know, to try to keep them comfortable and, and keep them uh, on track of what we were doing. And, you know, the stones are so fun, man. There's always a collapse somewhere. It wouldn't be the stones really? if, you did, if you didn't have that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's been times when uh, Keith uh, started uh, jumping Jack Flash when it was supposed to be satisfaction. And, and, you know, there's this big train wreck or whatever. There's been, you know, other instances. And, there, you know, I learned a lot about that, Steve. I used to get really upset when things would go wrong in certain bands, you know, if somebody played a bum note or played, played the wrong chord or whatever might happen. But I learned from the Stones, whoa, whoa, it's only rock and roll, man. You know, it's, it's like somebody right, right. farted, right? You, you, like it's a, a, a nice big fart. <laughs> we all do it, so, you know, get over it. <laughs> sure. I mean, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around because they're just so massive. But, but still, they are just like a rock and roll band. You're right. Well, they are. And, and getting back to the point of uh, my role with the band, I mean, it, it, it's morphed into, you know, I'm known as a musical director now, and, and it's fun to have that role. Again, it's not like I get to play solos like I did when I was with the, with the Allman Brothers or maybe with Eric or, right. uh, you know, in other situations. But I love my role with the band. I love them looking over at me sometimes with quizzical looks on their faces and I can, you know, give them the signal that it's okay. And, um, I'm, yeah, yeah. I, I probably count off about half the songs on the set. Uh, I, tempos are very important to Mick and, and I think it's rightfully so, you know, you want to, you want to have the pace of whatever song it is just right. So, uh, I try to keep the tempos where they should be. And, uh, right but on. man, oh man, I, I just got to tell you, looking over there and there's Charlie Watts. That's Charlie Watts playing the drums, man. I, I'm on the stage with Charlie right? Watts. And look, that's Keith Richards. Jesus, Ronnie Wood. <laughs> Mick Jagger is singing. He's playing harmonica. My God, you know. And, and uh, <laughs> it's just such a trip. It's so fun. I, you know, when I was in my first... It doesn't wear thin after 35 years? Uh, not a bit. Uh <laughs> and the thing is, and I'm sure you can appreciate this, when you're in your first band, the first band I had was called the Misfits. We played the YMCA every Friday night. And what did we play? Probably 75% British Invasion. So the first guitar riff I ever learned was the last time. Being a fan back then and then being to be able to be on the stage or in the studio um, at this juncture, it's just it's an incredible feeling. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Can you tell me a little bit about 
what it's like recording with the stones. Like um, I would imagine it's changed a lot, like from the dirty work and undercover days in the er early mid eighties to now, like they're just different producers and and things like that. But um, can you maybe just tell me a little bit about what the process is? You mentioned you recorded uh, um, undercover or was it dirty work in Paris? Um, You know, in those days, what were those sessions like? Well, you know, it could it could happen in a couple of different ways. Uh, Mech and Keith are the primary songwriters, of course, as we all know, Jagger Richards. And uh, sometimes um, Mech may come in with something fairly complete, you know, and it just needed a little tidying up or deciding where to put a solo, something like that. He he might have, a, you know, 85% of the song written. Uh, other times, Keith might come in and he's got this amazing riff and but he's you know he he doesn't have much more than that and so he, he plays it over and over and over and we all just join in and somebody will say you know uh, hold on let's let's go to uh, section B you know figure out what that might be and Mick will oftentimes when when the song is not structured like that he'll just be mumbling you know and then mm-hmm. it, uh, unintelligible words but basically singing some kind of melody. And yeah. that's always so interesting to me, you know, just nonsense. And, uh, and I understand that uh, Lennon McCartney did that quite a lot, you know, that it, they, uh, it, it didn't matter what you said, just say anything until right. you can kind of get a structure. And then Nick is quite good at going and doing the homework and filling in some lyrics, finding a theme, whether it's a song about love or a song about hate or a song about trains or a song about whatever it might be. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it takes some time when those types of songs are developed uh, to get there. But the work ethic is amazing. You know, these guys, really? oh, man, I mean, you know, we're, we're in the studio for, in the old days. We don't do it anymore. But in the old days, we would be in the studio for 12, 15 hours, you know. Um, wow. bat, bashing it out until something happened. So again, and, it, and it could come, you know, it, it, at times there would be a complete uh, thing to work with. And it, it, at times, and I would say that would be about 50, 50, you know, sometimes uh-huh. uh, they're just, uh, just an idea expand on. And would those records have been done fairly organically? Was like, was everyone playing together or were you, were you just overdubbing your parts or was it like a, band or was it more of a you know in the 80s there was a whole lot of overdubbing and playing to click tracks and things like that going on what was it like for the stones no that's that's not the rolling stone way man it's it's uh pick up yeah. your instruments uh let's let's start and you know there there could be times when they said look chuck uh, sit this one out we don't feel like it needs any keyboards and you know okay i'm, I'm cool with that um mm-hmm. and okay yeah we want you to play piano and organ on this or maybe you should play Wurlitzer and so you know but it's the real deal and are there overdubs well of course there are you know from time to time uh, Ronnie may overdub a solo we may everybody's playing through the section that would be a solo and then you know Ronnie would uh, put it in there later or Keith may do it later Nick may overdub harmonica so you know there's overdubs but it's uh oh 75 percent uh you know all at the same time and also at that time i mean you know like again pretty famously like you were sort of caught in the middle of like pretty pretty notorious spats like mick and keith i know were not getting along in those days and uh i guess charlie had his moments too like back in those days too well, well wait, a minute. Wait, like- wait a minute where did you hear that 
<laughs> oh, everything ever written? <laughs> really? <laughs> Look, every band goes through that, and we all know it. Yeah. You know, there's there's always it. Life is not all a bowl of cherries. You know, you're going to have times when uh, um, it gets hard. Uh, but that's another amazing thing about the Rolling Stones. They always stick with it. You know, this band has been together over 55 years. And, yeah. uh, you know, if, if there's things that uh, go down that are uncomfortable or whatever, they, they work their way through it. They figure it out. And have I been in the middle of that? Hell yeah. And, uh, mm. you know, I, it, there's times when you just shut up and go to a corner and there's times when you say, whoa, 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 you know, uh, let me just, let me tell you what I think. And, and so, um, again, I, I think you have to pick your moments very carefully with any situation. Um, yeah. but it's, it's such a privilege to be there, Steve. And, you know, I can't believe it's been 36 years, but it has, and it's been incredible. <laughs> it really has been incredible. So lately you guys did this like pretty left turn and made blue and lonesome, which is just like a crazy, awesome live blues record. Was that something that, uh, was talked about or planned or did it just happen? And can you just tell me what those sessions were like? Well, here's what I understand. Now, uh, I was not there during uh, the uh, during those sessions, but they, they had gone in to try to have some new material. And I think they kind of reached a, uh, a point where it wasn't going as well as they would like. And they, they were kind of searching and, and things weren't just coming together as neatly as uh, they would have preferred. And so Don was very wisely. Uh, who was a great guy to work with and, and just an amazing producer. Don said, well, look, hey, let's lighten up here. You know, play one of those blues songs that you guys like to play. You know, let's, let's just have some fun. Just play, you know. Let's get off the tension and just break it up. Let's, let's play music, you know. So they did, and they put it down on tape. I don't, I'm not sure what the very first song was, to be honest with you, that they recorded. Mm -hmm. uh, but the intention was not to record a blues album. So... Anyway, as the days ensued, uh, they picked, cherry-picked uh, these blues songs, all covers, and put together this amazing record. And, you know, I, I heard about it, and I'm like, well, yeah, but what about me? And, <laughs> and so we got together uh, for a tour, and Keith pulled me aside, and he said, man, listen, I, you got to hear this stuff, and don't worry, you're going to be on it. Uh, but it just went down so quickly. There was no, it didn't make sense to fly you in. We, we were done before we, any of us thought we would be. It was only like three days they recorded the thing. Mick said the same thing to me. He said, uh, you got to be on these sessions. You and Don work it out. <clears throat> Don called me and we went down to New Orleans uh, at a wonderful studio called The Parlor. And uh, mm -hmm. they had really great keyboards there, but I wound up doing everything, uh, at least that was acoustic piano that I played on. Uh, everything was on an upright. Uh, I did a little bit of organ. I did a little bit of Wurlitzer, but uh, all the piano was done on an upright piano just to keep cool. that authentic sound, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. and I did it all in a day, you know, took, took about six hours and we were done. And I'm on, oh, I, uh -huh. I think maybe... 80% of it, something like that. Was Don was uh, there for your part of it, or were you just overdubbing on top, sort of with, with, with nobody else directing you? No, Don was there. Don was there. Oh, he was. Okay. Uh, you know, having uh, been the guy that produced it in the first place, 
uh, as I, you know, certainly wanted him to be there. I wouldn't have done it without him. Uh, but uh, he was—he's always great to work with, and it was very encouraging. And most of what I did were like first or second takes. You know? uh, it's a—it's ki- a killer record, and it's got great energy, and it's a real left left turn really for a stone studio record record to yeah. all of a sudden be something like that. It was super cool. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I mean, I could talk to you for hours, but, um, I, just before we wrap it up, there's a couple sort of miscellaneous things. I just wanted to ask you about that. I'm wondering if maybe you can tell me a couple things about one of them is the, um, Hail Hail Rock and Roll movie and record, which that came out right as I was kind of getting into all that kind of music and and uh, was a big thing for me. And it's really interesting. And there's sort of a mix of Stone's worlds and also like the whole Keith solo scene with with those guys that he was starting to play with. And um, and then this crazy dynamic with Chuck Berry and they didn't seem to really be. Well, I mean, they get into like fights in the middle of the in the middle of the movie. Uh, can you tell me a bit about the making of that crazy movie and and what it was like for you? Well, it was fun and horrible at the same time. Uh, Chuck, as many people know, could be, not always, but could at times be extremely difficult to work with. Um, mm-hmm. It seems, you know, that he's had a, had a chip on his shoulder for many years for whatever reasons. And so uh, there were times when we'd be in there rehearsing and it would just be fabulous. You know, we'd play in Johnny B. Good or we'd play in, you know, uh, Havana Moon or any, any one of those yeah. great songs and, and we're just having the best time. And then he wouldn't show up because he wanted to renegotiate his deal and we'd all be sitting on our ass for, you know, a day or two uh, until he decided he was going to come around. And then there were, you know, there were tense moments in the, uh, you know, in some of the rehearsals as was depicted in the movie when that, there was that yeah. scene, scene between Keith and Chuck that uh, got testy. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it got very testy. And for me, you know, working with Johnny Johnson was a, a big part of how wonderful it was. You know, he's the great piano oh, player. Man, yeah. Of course, I played Hammond organ on, on that uh, whole thing. And I uh, got to learn a lot from Johnny uh, in the process, which was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, you know, Steve Jordan, gee, what do you say? He's one of the Incredible. greatest drummers in the world. And uh, Joey yeah. Stampinato was a good choice for bass. Um, and yeah. then all the guest artists were fantastic. You know, Eric was on it and Linda Ronstadt was on it. There were so many wonderful guest artists. So, you know, it, but uh, it wasn't smooth sailing all the time. You know, there were... Uh, there were difficult times to get it done and not just from my perspective, but, you know, from Taylor Hackford's uh, perspective, trying to direct the thing and put it together from Keith's uh-huh. perspective, you know, Keith's whole idea was Chuck always get, does these pickup bands, you know, uh, yeah, it, yeah. he doesn't, he doesn't have the great band that he had on those records or on some of the early days. And let's give him a great band and a platform and, and, you know, make it right. And that was the whole impetus. And that's what we tried so hard to do. I think at the end of the day, we achieved it. Um, but it, it, there were times when it wasn't easy. I can tell you that. You mentioned Joey Spompanato from NRBQ. I heard that he was at one point being uh, potential for the, the stone for Bill Wyman's replacement. Is that is that something that kind of almost happened out of that movie? Yeah, yeah. There were a lot of guys that auditioned on bass and you know mm-hmm. they were all great but i think joey was in the short list yeah 
you know, he, he has a certain sound and, uh, that, that, that was compatible. Uh, I think when it came down to it, the guys were like, the, you know, they had the short list and they looked at Charlie and said, Hey man, you know, <laughs> it's up to you. <laughs> you have to choose. And, uh, yeah. he very wisely said, well, I think Daryl is the guy and Daryl has been the guy. Daryl's absolutely amazing. You know, he's so versatile he sure and is. just, uh, oh man. Yeah. So yeah, and we're, we're all very pleased that it worked out as it did, but uh, all due respect yeah. to Joey, you know, fantastic player. He is great. Yeah. Um, the last one that I was hoping you could just tell me a bit about is the Eric Clapton unplugged. And I, I, I know you've played with Eric, with Clapton a f- number of times over the years. Um, but that unplugged one was just such a massive record. And I think probably was, a, again, sort of un- unexpected um, because it was totally different and, and wasn't like what he was doing at the time. Uh, it, it comes across as something that's, you know, kind of loose and, and the band is playing great together, but it also seems like highly rehearsed, like everything is perfectly in place. I'm just wondering, like, how much time was put into that record before the actual performance? Well, uh, the background is that um, Eric had recruited me a couple of years, well, about a year before that, I guess it was. Um, he, Eric had been a guest artist on uh, the Steel Wheels tour on a few occasions, and we did, uh, okay. yeah, and, and they set him up right next to me on stage, which was nice, and we always did uh, Little Red Rooster was the song we did. And so, you know, we had a couple of nice little musical conversations uh, back and forth on that song and a couple of nice uh, glances to each other. And I get home and um, this is before digital and and I had uh, the cassette machine was my answering machine and I still have the cassette and it's Eric. (laughs) And he says, hello, this is Eric Clapton calling from Hong Kong. I'd like to know if Chuck would like to do some shows at the Royal Albert Hall. So, uh, <laughs> yes, I would very much. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> he actually called you himself. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, that when I came into the band, I was replacing Alan Clark, who had done mostly organ and uh, who was going back to play with Dire Straits. And so the seat was open. Uh-huh. Greg Fillingames was already in place. And wow, what a great player and friend Greg is, by the way. And so um, I came in pretty much as second keyboardist uh, with Greg and we did the 24 nights uh, record and that was massive fun. I I got to play on 18 of the 24 nights. Eric was going to take time off and be with his son, um, who was a young two year, two year old, I think three year old, maybe. Uh, yeah. and so we all went home expecting, well, you know, it's going to be a long time before we see each other again. And that tragic thing happened with the boy Connor and he fell out of the window in New York city at a high rise and, and died. And so, uh, it wasn't long after that, uh, the phone rang and it was Eric's manager saying, look, you know, Eric needs to work. He needs to keep his mind occupied. And he's, laid down a gauntlet and a challenge to George Harrison. You know, they're friends, of course, long, long friends and rivals at the same time. And uh, so Eric has convinced George to tour Japan and, you know, we want the same band. So we all got together and just did this amazing rehearsal section and and, um, tour of Japan with George Harrison. Well, at the end of that, which again was just a blessing, 
at the end of it, Greg decided, Greg Fillingay has decided that he didn't want to tour anymore. He wanted to go back to LA, produce records, play on records, not move around so much. And Eric came to me and he said, listen, Greg's resigning and it's all cool. You know, I understand. Uh, but I'm going to carry on. We're going to do this unplugged thing. And so do you feel like we need another keyboard player or do you want to have it to yourself? And, you know, I said, Eric, you know what? I'd like to have it to myself if you're okay with it. And he agreed. And so, you know, I was a little bit like a coiled up spring, man. You know, I, I loved playing with him. <laughs> loved, you know, Greg was getting, uh, you know, most of the soloing and whatnot. And so we rehearsed for Unplugged. And, um, you know, I, I held back a little bit during those rehearsals because, you know, I wanted to cut loose during the actual performance. Um, you know, we didn't rehearse. We didn't over rehearse. I think we had a, a week, maybe, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, but one story that I'll pass on is that during the rehearsals, we did the song old love, right? And for whatever reason, Eric didn't think it was working. So he said, well, I'm not going to put that in a set. And I was kind of disappointed because, you know, I thought it was a cool song. And, uh, we, we do the show. It just goes great. You know, there's all these, uh, fun little outtake jams that you've probably seen. And of course the, the set was incredible i got i got some nice solos in and um yeah. it was a, a big moment for me and then at the end we played every song we had rehearsed and they wanted more the audience and eric i don't know why he turned to me but he did and he said what can we do and i said eric do old love <laughs> do old love and he kind of oh. said oh, okay and we did and that became quite a moment for me oh that's cool so that wasn't even meant to happen that just ended up on there yeah, exactly. It, um, he, wow. he was going to leave it out, but uh, that was the last thing we did. And how much of the of the show was, um, like, there's quite a few rearrangements, you know, like Layla comes to mind and things like that, where, where they're completely reworked. Was all that stuff, like, fairly easily put together, or was that, like, a, a long process of, of, of getting new arrangements of old material? Well, on a lot, uh, most all of the whole project, the the beginning of it was just Eric and Andy Fairweather Lowe. Andy would go over to Eric's house uh, and they would go through these songs and mess around. And when the band finally got together, you know, and Andy became a very good friend of mine and, and he, he said, Chuck, Eric's got this weird idea of doing Layla like a shuffle. And I said, a shuffle? Really? Oh, oh okay. But then we heard it and we thought, yeah, that's cool. And, uh, so we all, you know, pitched in and did our thing. And, um, uh, it, it, it was that whole thing. Uh, the, the rehearsal period for unplugged, the actual show unplugged, and then the tour afterwards, uh, was just a very, very special time. Wow, man. Well, um, I really appreciate you talking to me today. Um, as far as like what you're doing now, you've got this new record coming out. Um, you've got th your TV show that you're doing, uh, America's Forest, which uh, I think you have some new episodes coming out. And uh, do you keep yourself open for projects or do you are you like obligated to the stones at this point where you can't really get involved in too much else? Or like how what how are you juggling things these days? Well, you know, it's a balancing act. I mean, obviously, I want to be available for the Stones, and they don't always make their minds up quickly. So, you know, yeah. you you uh, you just have to be aware of uh, the possibilities and leave some things open. I'll, I'll tell you one really nice uh, surprise for me two years ago was um, 
out of the blue, I, I get an email. Or actually, it was a uh, on the guest book of my website. Uh, mm-hmm. My wife, Rose Lane, said, there's a guy here who says he's David Gilmore. And, you know, the message read, uh, hey, Chuck, David Gilmore here, dot, 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 honest. And he left a, a phone number and an email. And I was a little reluctant, but I said, well, why not? You know, so I emailed him. He said, yeah, man, this is me. I've been thinking about you. I'm, I'm going to change my band up, and um, I'd like to see if you're available. And as the gods would have it, I was available. Stones weren't working. And, you know, when I finally called David and we talked, I said, David, man, you want me to come over there and play with you a little bit and make sure you're comfortable with this? He said, no, I know who you are. I know what you do. Just come on, rehearsal start on such and such a date. And I was like, man, are you kidding? So, um, again, my old and dear friend, Greg Fillingames, is in the mix, too. So we're tag-teaming for for Gilmore and just having the time of our lives. And we come to the end of the rehearsals, and uh, it had just gone great. And David turned to me and he said, do you want to sing on this one? this next one? And I said, sure, man. I thought maybe he wants to sing some background or harmony or whatever. And yeah. I said, yeah, yeah, whatever you want. He said, okay, we're going to do comfortably numb. You do the counterpart. And, and I was like, are you kidding, man? I got to do comfortably numb. <laughs> Holy moly. <laughs> so, uh, we just had a fabulous tour and, um, I think David's writing some material now. He's become a, a good friend, uh, and hopefully there'll be something more with him. But wow, what a great guy. What an incredible talent. Yeah, he's written su- such great tunes, and his playing is so... He, actually, he's sort of like a guitar equivalent of you in some ways, like very melodic and memorable solos over and over again. I, I, both of you jump out in my mind as as people that, that do that really well, exceptionally well. Well, that's a quite a compliment and I really appreciate it. But David, wow, he's, he's, he is his own style and so melodic, as you say, and, and thoughtful. Every note is very thoughtful. His tone is just one of the greatest tones in the world. And, and his voice, yeah. my heavens, you know, what a great singer. It's great. Yeah. yeah, man. I love his voice too. Yeah. But you know, that back to your question about uh, balancing things out. I had uh, the fun called just the other day from um, my friend Frank Liddell, who is the producer for Miranda Lambert. Um, I've been on a couple oh, yeah. of, uh, I've been on a couple of Miranda's solo record, but now she has this side band called the uh, Pistol Annies. And yep. uh, so Frank called me up and he said, uh, Hey man, I got some tracks. You, you got a day open. And so I, I'm overdubbed five songs uh, for him recently. And, and, and you know, it's, I'm just blessed that these things come up from time to time uh, when the stones aren't working and I have time to do it. And what a pleasure to speak with you, Steve. It really has been a joy and uh, brought back a lot of memories talking about this stuff. I sure appreciate it. And and I'm really looking forward to hearing the new record. And thanks so much for doing this. Okay, you bet, man. Take care. Okay. All right. You too. Bye. I just had to let that play a little longer. Yeah, that is such a badass solo. Uh, that's Chuck Lavelle playing the piano on Jessica, of course. And thank you for listening to this entire thing. I know you all listen to every word going back to part one. Thanks for checking it out. We'll be back three weeks from now with another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then.
Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.